Welcome back to On The Tape, everybody. I'm Guy Adami, joined as always by my dear friends Dan Nathan and Danny Moses. Listen, today we're going to be talking about Archegos, the quarter-end melt-up, the quarter that was and all the craziness that went on. And later we're going off the tape in an interview with Raul Paul. This is dropping on Thursday, folks, as Friday is a holiday. Please allow me to start. This quarter was fascinating on a number of different levels. This was the quarter, by the way, we had Robinhood. We had GameStop. It's almost as if it happened a year ago. Why? Because over the last couple of weeks, we've been learning all about Archegos, which I'm sure Danny Moses will tell me what it means because I'm not smart enough to know. And we learned about somebody named Bill Wang. Now, why is he interesting? How in the world was he able to basically create a problem, almost a $10 billion problem for some of these banks? How in the world did that happen with a man who in 2012 pleaded guilty to insider trading and stock manipulation, paid fines anywhere from 45 to $60 million, yet in 2021, it's fine. And oh, by the way, the market doesn't seem to care because we have a VIX below 20. We have an S&P 500 on either side of 4,000. We have the Russell small cap index getting off the mat, and the NASDAQ seems to be getting its vibe as well. This all, by the way, under the auspices of a 10-year yield, Danny Moses, that's gone from 90 basis points when we effectively started this year to 1.7% as we sit here today. I find it all fascinating. I can only imagine what's going to take place next quarter. Yeah, two of the worst performing assets in the quarter were U.S. Treasury bonds and gold, oddly enough, but quite a quarter. And Archegos in Greek means leader or prince. And he led those uh, brokers right into the abyss. And I don't know what they were thinking. You know, doing the stuff on swap makes it anonymous. Maybe they weren't realizing how levered he was across the street. Kind of worst kept secret out there, maybe. But there were some brokers that certainly got out ahead of others without naming. But we know from the losses that we're seeing potentially that are out there who did not get out in time. And so I think we're going to see this unfold. But it appears to be contained, at least if you want to call it contained, except for the market caps of the stocks that got destroyed that never should have probably been up where they were, but then kind of reverted back. But it still remains to be seen. But certainly for sure, the way the risk managers work, and you guys know this because we've all worked on Wall Street, there's taps on the shoulders now across every desk and be like, all right, what do we got? Any exposure here? Anything that looks like this? Get on it. Goodbye. See you later. So that's going on now as we speak. So you know, we'll, we'll see what the next quarter has in store. It's hard to believe that the Q2 will be as exciting as Q1. But I think it will be. It's funny. I think that Q1 2021 is going to be a quarter long remembered. I don't know if you guys can, re- can recall what movie that is from. Guy Adami, you haven't seen a new movie um, since like 1972 when The Godfather came out. So I'm not going to expect you to kind of know this. Yeah, no, actually, I will, what I'll, t- I'll share with you is the l- last time I went to the movies that we actually saw, they called it Shake and Bake, if you recall. Danny Moses might remember this. It's when Top Gun Earthquake came out with the top. Not Top Gun. (laughs) Earthquake came out along with the Towering Inferno, and I went to the drive-in movies to see that. Very long, by the way. You had to be there for about five and a half, six hours. But since you asked, Dan Nathan, I thought I'd give you an answer. By the way, you laugh, but you know that Bill Wang just got a movie deal. No, stop. That's impossible. All right. Who knows? But we'll see. Yeah, they'd be calling that the big long. I mean, to to use the leverage that he did buying those stocks and those parabolic manners um, is just crazy. It it looked like a suicide mission. But when you think about the quarter that just ended and you said that, you know, the S&P 500 closed at an all-time high. It closed last year at an all-time high. None of us thought that was going to happen. But there was a lot of crazy stuff that went on. You mentioned that GameStop situation. That is unusual. Usual, to say the least, what happened there, the fact that Robinhood was at the center of that thing and that they have filed confidentially to go public in Q2 is crazy. I thought that was going to be the WeWork of 2021. You just mentioned gold, Danny. You know what's up 100%? Bitcoin's up 100% this year alone. Bitcoin has doubled. Here's another thing that's kind of crazy. SPAC issuance in Q1 2021 has equaled already all of the issuance last year in 2020. And we knew that was a record year. And you know what 2020 was? 2020 SPAC issuance was greater than the prior 10 years combined, right? So you're taking all this sort of activity in the markets with the markets at highs, the VIX, like you said, guy at 19 or whatever, it just seems like a really bizarre 
period of time. And then when you talk about yields going from 90 bips to 175 bips in that period of time, that has to be the the fastest move that we have ever seen in a rate rise, uh, at least that I can imagine or remember in my career. Well, bond volatility is here. I talk about it all the time. I mean, the fact that we don't speak about bond volatility the same way we talk about equity volatility to me is sort of crazy because bonds should not be nearly as volatile as they've been. For whatever reason, again, the broader market doesn't seem to care. I think they should. The fact that, to your point, Dan, last year at the end of the year, 10-year yields were 90 basis points as we sit here now, effectively have doubled 1.7% on its way to two, by the way, by Memorial Day, if you're playing our home game. And I think that's really going to put a damper on a lot of these stocks. What's fascinating, though, is the market has seemed to figure out how to deal with rates at these levels, right? They've completely embraced it, and off we go into the wild blue yonder. So it's incredible to me how acclimatized, good word by me, the market seems to be with rates at these levels. Yeah, but you said they've embraced it. I mean, we spent a good part of 2018 with yields going up, equities going up. If it wasn't for the the kind of tariff fears and the growth fears, that might have been okay. And the 10-year treasury yield got to 3%. I know that some of you guys are going to say, well, back in 2013 and early 14, when the treasury 10-year treasury got to 3%, we saw a lot of equity volatility. But to me, I think it makes sense, Guy. I, I, I just don't think, you know, you've been asking for normalized rates for a long period of time, right? Well, here they are. I'm thrilled that rates are going higher. I think rates should be significantly higher. And the pushback will be, well, the Fed can somehow control it. Bullshit. They can't. And if the market is going to sell off on the back of it, it should sell off on the back of it because valuation-wise, nothing makes sense. Rates should be higher the Fed should never have been where they are in the first place, and the market's just doing the job for them. So rates went down last year because the Fed had to do that to avoid a seizing up of the credit markets, right? So, you know, at the end of the day, they did what they had to do, and now they're going up pretty fast. So they went down pretty quickly, and now they've gone back up. I go back to the start of the quarter. We had a capital riot. Capital was literally invaded, and that was January 6th, Right. I think people took a deep breath after that. Biden actually got inaugurated, right? Then that happened. And then the vaccine was coming and is coming and is here. There was a pent up anxiety. And, you know, it's always about, and Spencer pointed this out today. I mean, it's always like manic buying or manic selling or panic this, panic that. And I think people are just releasing from a consumer behavior perspective. And the outlook for that is a lot of pent up demand potentially. And people are projecting forward, which would mean higher rates and higher equity. However, none of this happens without the Fed. Back to the Fed. So we had, a, we felt like the, the Fed was in vogue the entire quarter. If there's one constant that was continuously in the news, it was the Fed. Don't worry, a little blib here, Fed's got your back. A little bit. And then we had the ridiculous hearings down in D.C., obviously, that occurred on uh, Robin Hood. And then what do we have? We had an SEC that kind of woke up. There are a ton of stocks that are down a lot. I don't have it in front of me. And if you had told me that the market is at these levels, after, if you didn't show me the market levels and you show me the quarter go on and on, and I didn't have a composite in front of me, I would say the market was down 20 to 25% for the quarter. Mm-hmm. That's how it You're felt right. to me. And bonds, I don't know the dollar amount that was lost potentially in the bond market for pension funds that are now probably pulling out of bonds and probably chasing equities here for these type of returns as they can't, you know, losing money by owning them. So I'm not sure exactly, but it's setting up for quite a year. Yeah. And for you folks playing the home game who find yourself scratching your head when Danny evoked the name of Spencer, he was not talking about the great Spencer Tracy, nor was he talking about Jim Spencer, who played first base for the New York Yankees in the late 70s. He was speaking about our crack producer and early graduate from the Wharton School, Spencer Corrick. Anyway, I digress. Now, Dan Nathan said something to me prior to us taping about the month of April, saying 15 out of the last 16 Aprils or so, the market's been higher. You probably could say that about just any month over the last 12 years or thereabouts. But you know what? April's next. So let's talk about that, if you will. So the April effect, obviously, is something you have to keep an eye on. But it just seems like if you're just talking to anybody, the focus here is that everyone's going to be vaccinated in the not so distant future. You saw that headline this week from Pfizer that their COVID-19 vaccine was 100% effective among kids age 12 to 15. What does that mean? That means that we are going to hit 
herd immunity this summer. We just had the president talking about an additional $2 trillion in infrastructure. That comes after $2 trillion of fiscal stimulus that we just got in Q1. So the narrative is all that pent up demand, the economy is going to be reopened. We got the roaring 20s here. So Danny Moses, you have some thoughts on the April effect. Please let me hear them. Well, it's safe to say that this April will feel a lot better than last April, considered we were locked underground last April. But historically, and my former partner, Vincent Daniel, used to point this out because he would never let me short credit card stocks in the spring, is because consumer credit always looks the best in April because tax refund season historically, I know it's delayed here till May 15th, but tax refund season always occurred. Consumers get money in their pocket. They go out and spend. Bullshit. A- You're too stupid to have a job. You know what that's from, Danny Moses? Help me out here. Eddie Murphy, Nick Nolte. You, you 48 are hours. so good. You, you know, are so Remember good that the scene, the time. guy pulls out a wad of, of cash and Eddie Murphy says, where'd you get that tax refund? Bullshit. You're too stupid to have it. <laughs> By the way, I love Eddie Murphy. I know I'm off topic here, but he used to live in Englewood Cliffs and he lived in a place called Bubble Hill. So every year around Christmas time, my friend Nadav and I would drive to his house with a bottle of scotch and I'd ring the bell at the gate and say, is Mr. Murphy home? I always want to deliver him a bottle. By the way, I was never able to do that, but I digress. Please continue, Danny. Hercules, Hercules, Hercules. His best line ever. Anyway, yes. So April always looks better normally. And plus you're coming off Q1. You get the reporting season coming in. So we'll we'll see. Those numbers are obviously going to be much better this year's round. By the way, you, I do know this. Now that you trade on Robinhood going forward, you don't get the confetti, by the way. What? So they got rid of their What's confetti. That? What does that even no mean? No more gamification. That's it. They've gotten rid of, of the confetti. So now it's just a strict, solid trading platform. Just kidding. Listen, it's like we've forgotten about Robinhood. That went, it's just incredible how in this quarter, all the things you mentioned, we have forgotten about. And I want to talk quickly about some of these things. Robinhood, to me, is fascinating. But how... You know, how in the world can we look at a 10, potentially a $10 billion loss with one hedge fund or one family office that nobody's ever heard of, by the way, we'll never hear of again, and to think that it's not systemic, not for the system, Danny Moses, but systemic in the fact that there got to be a lot of guys and gals doing the same shit, I would imagine. Yeah, there are for sure. And I think I just said that the risk managers are out there tapping people on the shoulder at all the banks and asking what else they got. And some... Banks face other issues as well, obviously, right? There's other scandals going on. We've talked about Greensill, who's wrapped up in that as well. Credit Suisse is still going through that. I don't know what the end result of that is going to be. But there's enough kind of bad stuff going on in a bull market. Again, in a bull market, it just it feels so fragile to me. And it could continue. The Fed keeps printing money. It will continue. You know, We'll see. But that'll be a big story during the second quarter. Because keep in mind, the numbers are going to start to look great. The economic numbers are going to look astronomical, obviously, year over year. And I just want to, I know know we always hit about inflation and people are probably sick about hearing about it. But Kimberly Clark came out today and they said they're going to be raising prices on toilet paper and paper towels. I think most of those are, you know, I know Dan doesn't wash his hands that much, but those are necessities for a lot of people. And the fact that corn and soybeans had a breakout today, if you look at those yeah. two charts, based on what the USDA said the planting season was going to look like. That's another Eddie Murphy reference, little trading places, where's Beaks, commodity, orange juice, what's going on? But that also happened. How does this not work its way into the system? Again, I go back to either going to get hit on the corporate margin level or it's going to get passed on to the consumer and become inflationary. Yeah. Listen, inflation is here. I don't really give a shit what Jerome Powell and his buddies at the Federal Reserve say. It's absolutely here. And if you're living in this country, which by definition we all are, you see it every single day, and it must make you want to scream to hear when they say there's no inflation. It's here, folks. They just choose not to acknowledge it, or they're just oblivious to it. The other thing I thought was interesting, Dan, we had a great interview last week. I got to tell you something. Brady Cobb, man, I totally dig that guy. And Isaac Boltanski, although I broke his balls about being a goalie for the Charlestown Chiefs. I mean, the guy's brilliant, but we talked about cannabis, and we talked about how quickly things are going to get signed into law in New York. Well, guess what? It happened. It happened a lot quicker than you probably thought, but here we are. Yeah, if you're a politician in the state of New York and you want to get a bill done, you can go to Cuomo right now and we'll pretty much agree to anything, I think, given what the problems he's having. But yeah, no, that's the quickest I've seen. And what's really interesting, even though it was 100% assumed it was going to happen, the last few times that Cuomo, that we thought he was on the brink of signing a bill, it didn't happen. And so this actually signed into law this morning and the local municipalities in the state of New York can really 
decide for themselves what they want as far as whether they want a dispensary in their town or not. But it was a pretty wide-ranging bill. It allows you to carry three ounces. It allows you to smoke wherever cigarettes can be smoked. You can smoke cannabis. It does great for criminal justice reform. It expunges records of people that were thrown in prison for these type of what now you wouldn't be arrested for. Now your record gets expunged. I think that's great. And the money is going to go to communities that need it and that were hit the hardest by the war on drugs. And so Colorado, listen, if you look at state of Colorado, the way they implemented their tax system for cannabis, I mean, the school systems have never been in a better shape. And so hopefully this will be a positive outcome economically. I think there's, like I've said, I think there's a good health aspect to it. I'm not going to be the one to judge here whether you should take it or not. But, you know, I think this is a positive. And it really granted, the last thing it did was it grandfathered in the existing medical cannabis companies, which are already in New York, and allowed them to be vertically integrated. What does that mean? It means if you have wholesale, which is the grow, you can process your stuff, which is to turn it into, let's say, edibles. And then you also have the retail, you have the dispensary. Those are getting grandfathered in. The people that come in after, I don't think can have all three. I think they can only have one of the three. So positive for that. At the same time, just to bring it down to D.C., people were all hot and bothered because Joe Biden was talking about who didn't want to, quote, legalize cannabis. I think that got conflated because... The SAFE Act, the Bank Act, which we talked about last week with Brady and Isaac, I think is still going to happen. But no one ever expected, at least I didn't, cannabis to be, quote, legalized federally. I think a descheduling from a Schedule 1, so it's not in the same category as heroin, and to bring it down that allows banking and taxing and job growth and all the things that should happen is going to happen. So things are lined up. New York's obviously a huge state. I mean, think about New York City tourism coming in um, the same way they do in California. So Anyway, positive development. No question about it. And it says, as you were talking about the weed, as they say, it started to dawn on me. And, and I'd love to hear your thoughts on this. I know I've got the tinfoil hat and I'm a conspiracy theorist. By the way, Danny, I happen to think you're probably one as well. Maybe more closeted than I am. But with that said, you probably share some of the same beliefs that I do. But think about this for a second. Because Dan Nathan mentioned something about a suicide mission with the Viacom stock, buying it up, buying it up. Is there any chances whatsoever, and we're just throwing it out there, we're just having a conversation, that my view all along in GameStop, if you recall, that there was some puppet master behind this entire move. Could it have been somebody like Archegos or a group of Archegos ramping up the GameStop? Is that so preposterous of me to think? Not preposterous at all. Whether it's Archegos or someone else, it's now obvious that there's a lot of hidden trades or hidden funds going on in the system. So that are all on swap. So I don't know if we're going to find out necessarily. I don't, I think you could be right. And I love conspiracies. Mm. I know Dan is into conspiracies too. We're going to have a lot of fun next because we got, I think one of the more brilliant minds out there, not only in terms of what we do for a living, but just thinkers. If you dig thinkers, Raul Paul is going to join us next when we go off the tape. A former hedge fund manager who retired at 36, Rao Paul is a co-founder of Real Vision, a financial media company offering in-depth video interviews and research publications from the world's best investors. Rao retired from managing client money and now lives in the Cayman Islands, from where he manages Real Vision and writes for the Global Macro Investor, a highly regarded original research service for hedge funds family offices, sovereign wealth funds, and other elite investors. Raul, welcome to On The Tape. It is an absolute honor. You know I'm a huge fan of your work. Thanks for joining us today. It's great to be here. Great to be with you guys again. It's been a while. It's been too long for sure. And and let's get right into it because I got to tell you something. So first of all, I think you know this. I am not a believer in central banks. I'm not a believer in our Fed. I think we're going down an extraordinarily dangerous path. But the numbers I look at, $30 trillion in debt sitting on top of $21 trillion of GDP. Global debt, 110% of global GDP. Fed's balance sheet, $8 trillion. S&P 500, either side of 4,000. Does this math make any sense to you? It does. That's it? That's it? It And then next question, help me out here. Let me explain. Everybody's looking at this wrong. So... We know there's a massive debt bubble, right? That's granted. We know it's been transferred to the central bank balance sheet. That's obvious. Okay, so everybody's screaming and shouting. Everybody who's anti-Fed, which is all of us, (laughs) is screaming and shouting to say inflation is coming. 
just you wait, their bonds are going to collapse and it's going to be a catastrophe. What happens if everybody's looking at it wrong? What happens if what's actually happening is the value of fiat currency overall is devaluing? Because the other thing people say is the dollar's going to collapse. But when you look at the central bank balance sheet, it basically means that the denominator of these assets has fallen by some 60%. So if you divide the S&P by the Fed balance sheet, it's flat since 2008. And guess what? So is real estate, so is gold. So what it's basically telling us is what we're seeing, it, there's this rise in the markets, we're all thinking this is nuts, is not a rise in the markets, it's a fall in the denominator. That's an entirely different thing. And that is the inflation we're all looking for. It's happening there. We're not seeing it. We kind of think there's this asset inflation that goes from the, the Fed to the banks to maybe the prime brokers, whatever. It's not. It's the same as the Venezuelan stock market. If you look at it, the chart goes straight up. Yep. When you look at it in dollars terms, it goes straight down after the devel and trades sideways for five years. Well, what's interesting is, you know, and I think you have views on this as well. I'll also say along with that, the wealth gap in the United States has never been wider than it is. And oh, by the way, every time these central bankers, specifically our Federal Reserve, open their collective mouths, that gap continues to get wider and wider. So what you're talking about is absolutely true, but it only benefits one side of that bell curve. I mean, at a certain point, that becomes problematic. So if you think this through, so look, we haven't got a lot of CPI inflation because of technology, demographics and all of this. But let's take two cohorts of 32-year-olds, one with the baby boomers in 1980. Those guys can buy 60% more real estate, equity markets, or gold, let's say, with their median earning than the 32-year-old millennial now. Asset prices have gone up. Millennials can't afford to buy any assets. So what's happening is the rich who can buy the assets just get richer because they go up every day because they're offsetting the Fed balance sheet. Everybody else is getting screwed. This is what's really going on and why it's got so bad since 2008. You can't really see it on the surface, but beneath the surface, we all know it's there. And this is the mechanism. Ralph, so I, I saw your presentation about the upcoming crisis, pension funds, so forth, and I think you're spot on. And you mentioned in there that the Fed having lowered rates is actually making people work longer. The traditional savings rate that someone would have is just not there. They can't earn four or five, six percent. So they're earning less. So now the risk is obviously in the equity markets. And you point that out. So the Fed has no more ammunition left, although I'm sure they can come up with a new acronym and some type of new program that we haven't thought about yet and just buy more. But the Fed can't cut rates anymore. So to your point, and I know this all leads into the positive for Bitcoin and crypto in the long run, which is great. We will totally get to that. But what do we do here when, if the equity market does have that pullback? And your, your point about the inflation lies really in the equity markets, not so much in product. So if we think that through, the outcome can only be one thing, more central bank action. There is no other tools. So therefore, it's almost impossible outside of a bar shock for the equity market to go down. This is what dawned on me after the biggest recession in all of our lifetimes, in fact, the largest recession in 80 years, and the equity market went up like a rocket ship. We're all like, I don't understand this. And we're all creating these narratives around it. Why? And you know, why SaaS businesses are now valued like bonds? It wasn't. Just divide the market by the Fed balance sheet, and it was unchanged. So it's a huge problem. The pension system is going to be a massive problem for all of this too. So if the equity market does pull down and it ruins that fraction that you're talking about, that all of a sudden that ratio will not look good, then what do you do? All they'll do is, is inject more money and they'll lower the thing and it keeps going up. So it looks like the stock market is going up, but your relative purchasing power in global asset terms hasn't. So nobody's getting richer from the fact that the stock market's going up, really. There are some things that have outperformed the Fed balance sheet, technology stocks being one, crypto being the other. Those are the two things. The pension system itself, you know, it's difficult to resolve because in that real terms, in Fed balance sheet terms, it's hard to generate any actual wealth for these people. I don't see a way out for the average 70-year-old baby boomer any longer. They kind of, as you alluded to, you kind of have to cash your chips in and know what you've got and adjust accordingly. And, you know, what they were doing before was working longer. But we've just seen the labor force participation rate collapse 
because everybody who's working in retail and service industry has been laid off and they're probably never going to get a job again. That's a great segue here. I mean, you talk about that economic recession we had in the last year or so. It appears that we're coming out of the other side of it. But what do you see as some of the scars from that recession? We know that there was obviously accelerating of a lot of technological trends. I mean, these were secular shifts that were already in motion. And how does that change the global economy? Because we saw this, this kind of battle about globalization over the last five years. And then all of a sudden you have this real black swan event, which appears to have changed the way the workforce will be for from here on out. Yeah, I'm going to talk about first the negative hangover, and then we'll talk about some of the stuff that's coming, because I've had a big change of thinking about this stuff too. The negative hangover is the fact I remember growing up when I was a kid, I was growing up in the UK, 1979, 1980, through to 1983. We lost the coal industry, the steel industry, the shipbuilding industry, and the car industry all at the same time. Probably 40% of those people got retrained, and 60% never went back in the workforce. There were no jobs for them. Here we are in a very similar situation. We are going to go into a new economic system where much of retail workers, which were a large bulk of the people we grew up with, right? They worked in stores, and they worked in restaurants, and they worked in bars. A lot of that is gone. So it won't come back in the same way. So we've got a hangover. And I think the Fed is dead right to talk about looking at unemployment as the key measure here. Because at the surface, we're seeing the stock market all-time highs, people saying it's ridiculous, we don't need stimulus. But go back and speak to friends we grew up with. They're telling you a different story, right? This is not the regular recession where the whole economy goes down, the whole economy comes back up again, and it usually takes 18 months. The rich made all their money back within six months, and the poor probably never will. And it exacerbates the whole situation. So this is why people are talking about universal basic income, because the jobs have been replaced by technology. That's the truth of what's happened. Much like when I grew up, it was the unions that got broken and that killed all of those industries and subsidies. Those two things broke all of that. Here, it's technology. Yeah, and I'm with you on this. And the Fed is right to talk about it. But is it their purview to talk about it? Or shouldn't that be a fiscal side of things. I mean, aren't they skating in lanes that they shouldn't, they historically have never been in and quite frankly shouldn't be in? Because I think they're trying to do the jobs of others right now because the others aren't doing their jobs. Guy, in the end, when interest rates get to zero, fiscal and monetary are the same thing. There's nothing left. You know, because we knew that QE just doesn't help people, right? It doesn't get to average people. It just juices a bunch of assets. Okay. So how else do the Fed stimulate the economy? I wouldn't want to be the Federal Reserve in this situation because I don't know what to do. I get it. I mean, you're right. It's fiscal. So the Fed just have to go, listen, we're now a government department. And we can hate that, but I don't think there's any other outcomes unless wipe the slate clean, which we can't do. You just made a comment that part of the economy may never come back and employment may never come back. So therefore, by definition, the Fed, who keeps changing the rules, by the way, or their mandate on how they're going to address any problem that comes their way. Oh, we'll let inflation run north of two. Unemployment has to be at X. We'll do everything we can. But I look at, to your point, QE, and still participating $120 billion a month. There's certain things which is just scares me as an equity investor, if I was in the markets, if I was, but I'm too scared, if I was in the markets, that what, what are we so scared of? Like, is it that fragile that you can't even mention tapering? And the other thing I have for you is that if all these other central banks weren't doing this, I mean, we used to make fun of Japan, right, years ago. And I know you used to write about that years ago. On a relative basis, I hear what you're saying. But on an absolute basis, it's scary what we're looking like when we're going to come out the other side of this, if and when that does occur. At some point, rates will go up. And it's I don't know how we're going to burn back through the atmosphere there. I'm not sure. And I'll come on to a lot of this where I think this is going. I think it's different than most people think. People think we would return to high rates. I don't think that's ever happening again. I think Japan has kind of shown the way on that. Also, let's assume that my framework, my hypothesis is correct, that the only reason equities go up is because it's the denominator that's gone down, right? So therefore, we talk about tapering, and it's a fact. All it means is that if the denominator stops moving, the equity market stops moving. It's like that relationship between oil and the dollar, right? It's the very same mechanism. So I'm not sure. Yeah, the equity market can't go up without QE, really, unless there's a step change. And that is about to happen. So I'm going to flip to the other side of this question. So we've got this whole really screwed up mess of 
demographics, debt, end the globalization, competition, massive competition for wages between the baby boomers and the millennials. Everybody's screwed in this situation and quantitative easing, no interest rates left. Let's walk into a different world. There is ahead of us, and it just only dawned on me when I started looking at what's outperforming the central bank balance sheet and ensure technology. And I realized most of us, in fact, almost every single person I know got this all wrong. We all said, Amazon, it's a bubble. We all said, Facebook, it's a bubble. All of these stocks, because we valued them using price earnings ratios when these things were getting valued according to network effects, Metcalfe's law. They all did that. So when you look at all of these on a log chart, they're all perfectly logarithmic, in a straight line, which is an adoption chart. So that made me start to think about, okay, is something changing here? We all know about the crypto stuff we'll come on to in a bit. But I was here in Cayman recently, and I'd just written some articles about carbon offset pricing and realizing the EU is basically going to collapse its carbon footprint by 65% in nine years. And in fact, almost everybody's going to try and do that. And the US will play catch up. And part of that is obviously they're going to massively incentivize electric vehicles. So that's written. Now, every single car that I look outside my door is obsolete in 10 years, every single one. And that is a massive boom for car companies, whoever gets electric vehicles right. There's a network effect that gets involved with the adoption of electric vehicles. But then I realized we've just gone through this virus where they use the MNRA virus vaccine that had been taking 20 years. They got it through in two months and solved it. And the same people are saying, we can probably do the same for malaria and some forms of cancer already. I'm like, wow, because of COVID, this is going to accelerate. Because of COVID, the climate change, the green stimulus in Europe, the US and elsewhere is going to accelerate. We're also seeing the rise of autonomous vehicles. We're also seeing edge computing and distributed computing. All of these things are happening at the same time. It's going to be the largest technological change mankind has ever faced in a period of 10 years. That's what I think is coming. And I think that is going to wipe the slate clean. So without getting too granular, you just mentioned EVs and and just basically the fact that all these combustion engine cars are going to be obsolete in 10, 20 years, that sort of thing. Do you think that we were just talking about globalization? You know, a big part of that is reshoring jobs. Are we about to see a renaissance in manufacturing here in the U.S.? If you look at just how GM and Ford have acted this year, they're being revalued right now because Tesla is up, what, a thousand percent in a year. All of those car companies are going to resell you and me a car. Every single one. How many cars have we got? All of those are going to be replaced. Of course, they're going to do well now. They got slammed in the recession. They're terrible, old, crappy companies, but they're all going to sell more cars. So that's amazing. Now, even with ride sharing and the rise of the sharing economy, they're still going to do that. So we've got this dramatic change that's coming for almost everybody. Right. But does that mean, like, let's say, for instance, and you've seen this time and time again, because Tesla was like a first mover here and they had this disproportionate market share in EVs, but yet it was less than 1% of global auto market share. And now when you consider the fact that almost every major competitor is coming for them and their market cap is 50% of the global auto market cap, is this really going to be it for Tesla? If you think about it, because here's a company who has not done a particularly great job on the execution of manufacturing manufacturing cars? I don't know. So there's two scenarios. One is the scenario that Tesla falls in price and others rise. Okay, get that. What happens if Tesla crack autonomous vehicles and they own the software and sublease it? They're worth a trillion (laughs) dollars. Don't forget they've got edge computing in their cars. There is a lot of other stuff that goes with this. And I've not been the Tesla bull. I'm not the usual technology bull. I'm the miserable old macro cynic. (laughs) And I kind of think the world has changed. And I honestly think it's all happening right now. I mean, Waymo and the Google self-driving cars, that's happening. Amazon, within five years, all its delivery vehicles are going to be autonomous driving. And whoever owns that software is king. It's like owning Microsoft back in 1988 or whatever. I don't think that's going to be Tesla. I think that they were an innovator. They were early, but these other companies are passing their technology Now, I think they had their opportunity. I think they were giving away their IP at one point. It was kind of an open source that they were letting people use. I think their issue is past that. I I think they won't be able to keep up with the manufacturing. I can't get there in terms of valuation. But just like you said, you and I probably think the same. You know, it's hard for me to imagine market capping back into 
But that being said, that's part of what scares me in this market are companies like this kind of story stocks where when when the stock starts to go down, what is the reason to buy these things back? And I think there's a lot of momentum names that are out there and story stocks that are, to your point about Amazon and Facebook, those weren't manufacturers, right? Those were companies that were reselling or tech companies that were advertising based or connectivity and growing. This is an industrial company, Tesla. This takes CapEx and they have done everything they can to kind of avoid being deemed an industrial company, an auto manufacturer, but that only goes so far. Yeah. The question I'm trying to keep my mind open to is what happens if our assessment is wrong? I got Amazon wrong all the way. It was trading for most of my career on a P of 600, right? I'm like, this is nonsense. This is stupid. Everyone's an idiot. I'm a macro genius. They're all wrong. I was wrong, totally wrong. So the answer is in a Massive technological change, which is driven by network effects, not selling of units. Maybe we're wrong. I don't know. I can't value that. So with Tesla, I can't value that. But I can say that I quite fancy VW going up because that's a good way of playing the trend. It looks like it's breaking out and that's okay. Can I buy Tesla from here? No. Could Tesla be worth a trillion dollars because the technology is worth a lot more than we think? And there's adoption effects and they figure out other stuff. For sure. I never thought when I saw Amazon as a bookseller, they'd end up dominating the world's retail market and everybody. Well, there was only one person who ever owned Amazon all the way through, and that was Jeff Bezos and his wife. Everybody else got off because they didn't believe in it because it was too expensive. And we were all wrong. If you remember, they were kind of saved by that convert over in Europe in 2001. They did that $800 million deal, and it was great to watch him build what he did. One other question before we leave this segment here is just ARC Asset. And I don't want to go too deep into it. I know that you had a response earlier. People shouldn't dunk on Kathy Wood. And I totally agree that she's been an innovator. She had some themes right early. But on the market structure side of that, the fact that her newest ETF is buying one of her other ETFs. So when you think about charging 75 basis points, then to buy another fund that you charge 66 for or whatever, I think there is a market structure problem. And it's not just her ETF. And I'd love to get your thoughts there. But she now holds 15 to 20% of 25, 30 different companies that are small cap. And so there is a structure problem. They all move together. Every one of these companies that does something different, whether it's in biotech or technology, moves the same each and every day. If I'm the CEO of one of the companies, of one of these companies that she owns, I don't know what to do because she owns 25% of it. So do you have any thoughts on the ETF side? Maybe she got too big too quickly and she's outgrown some of her ideas, but can you extrapolate on that a little bit? The structure in a massive unwind situation is probably ugly. I think everybody's barking up the wrong tree. I think, again, we've seen the stock, the, the ETF sell off. We've seen a lot of these stocks sell off. Again, let's think of it differently. Let's assume it's not a liquid ETF. Let's assume we don't trade the S&P and ETF form. Let's assume we don't know any of that. And somebody says, I've got a stock, a fund for retail investors to buy and sell that is like a VC firm and holds significant stakes in companies that could do extraordinarily well. I don't have a problem with that. I don't have a problem with the themes, the long-term element, or the fact that she's very early, therefore the stocks aren't liquid. Literally, I don't care. If, if these stocks are $100 billion stocks, they're less interesting. So should she have a caveat, a warning to say, listen, this could be a very volatile ETF? Sure. There's much more worse ETFs out there. USO was the greatest example of the shittiest ETF ever invented. <laughs> but we've seen a lot of this stuff in the past. I don't think it's bad for people to hold concentrated positions. In fact, I like it. But have the caveat and say, we've got a concentrated position. It's not very liquid at your own risk. Yeah. As Slider said in Top Gun, the list is long and distinguished. He wasn't talking about ETFs. I will not tell you what he was talking about at the time. But you mentioned we are in the greatest era of technological change ever in our country. So by definition, technology is the most deflationary force in history. But yet the Fed wants inflation. They're fighting a battle they can't win. So they're going to continue, to your point, to continue to throw more and more liquidity at the system. I think we all agree on that. But there are unintended or intended consequences on the back of that. One of them manifested itself over the last week and a half, two weeks. Now, in 98, long-term capital were the smartest guys. And I say guys because they were all men in the room. Their losses were about $5 billion-ish, and it almost took down the entire system. I think we all would agree on that. 
Today, obviously, many years later, we're talking about Bill Huang, who I never heard of, who, unless you followed the FBI when he pleaded guilty in 2012 and paid almost $60 million of fines, nobody ever heard of. Yet his losses or the losses associated with that are twice as much. My question to you is, he's not necessarily systemic, but is there a systemic problem based on all the excesses out there? What was interesting is this was a big unwind. I mean, investment banks took like 10 billion on the chin on this. The market barely went, market barely moved. That told me something. That was not what I expected, right? We were all expecting some big VAR shock to come and the market to get hit and it didn't. I'm like, oh my God, I, I don't really understand, but this market is different. Depends what we call systemic. Is there enough leverage in the system in short-term leverage? You know, not the big debt stuff, but the short-term leverage to bring the market down 20, 30, 40% pretty sharpish. Yeah, without question. You know, if you look at the retail option participation, so that therefore the, the long gamma position, uh, the short gamma positions by the option traders, we look at the record low cash by mutual funds, we look at the speculative positioning, the amount of activity in penny stocks, all of this stuff. Yeah, we could see the market come off pretty sharp. But we've all noticed, also know what the response is, which is do more. So we've got this put, it's a ridiculous situation, but this is what we've got. Well, you and I back in the day would use swaps for tax reasons, interest rate reasons. These total return swaps in the hedge fund world for this purpose are actually rare to use to stay you know, anonymous, to hold U.S. positions as a U.S. company was done for a reason. I think what guys really may be referring to, and I know Dan had mentioned this before, There's other firms out there like this that I'm sure every risk manager at every bank is going through right now and looking through who is, how could these banks not know the inherent risk already there based upon the potential other exposure they had on the street? Somebody had to be hiding something. I'm going to tell you a story and you'll remember this. So it's 1998 and I'm at a French stag weekend and I'm on a boat fishing and I'm a shit fisherman. So just chatting and having a few beers. And we all happened to be old friends. We grew up together. We all happened to be in the financial markets. And a friend of mine was at Salomon. I'm like, who's your biggest customer? He said, long-term capital. He was at equity derivatives. Then I turned to another mate who was at, I can't remember which bank, Barclays. Who's your biggest customer? Long-term capital. Then I spoke to a friend of mine who was head of Bund trading at Deutsche Bank. Who's your biggest customer? Long-term capital. I'm like, so is mine. I'm like, okay, how big are your positions? Between us, I mean, the, the German Bund Arb position was like gigantic. It was like 50 yards, 50 billion. And in the equity derivative world, I was at NatWest at the time. We had, I don't know, 5 billion. And I was the salesman who put all those trades on for them. And then looking at what the others had, you know, around the table, we had like 60 billion of risk. I remember going back to NatWest the following days, so we've got to get out of this. But we all make the same mistakes, right? Why? Because salesmen are incentivized as our traders to do as much with these customers as possible. Because when there's a big fish in town, you all want to skin it. So it's just inherent in the system. You know, I've been involved in all of these from Bearing Brothers going under in, in the early 90s. They're all the same. Everybody will extend leverage to people because they're incentivized to do so. I remember those times in the late 90s. I remember those times in the mid-aughts in the lead up to the financial crisis. The incentives were always the perversion that caused that excessive risk-taking and obviously, as Danny would say, leverage, right? And so this instance is, is probably a combination of both. But what I don't understand, talking to a lot of people about this situation with this fund right now, if you told me that these margin calls resulted from a short squeeze, if I'm looking at the charts that are involved in this situation, I'd say, fine, I get it. That makes total sense. But what type of effing moron is buying these stocks with that sort of leverage, right, after the parabolic moves that they've had? That I've never seen. That looked like a suicide mission to me. And, and so to me, I just can't get my arms around what the incentives were in this situation. No, I don't. And it kind of looked like SoftBank. That was very similar as well. Just mad insanity of the kind of leverage. SoftBank were doing the same. So I don't really know what was driving this thing. What I do know is that there's always a customer that everybody wants on Wall Street. The 90s and the early 2000s, it was the hedge funds. You know, and everybody would do anything to offer them whatever. Right now, everybody wants the family office. 
And what they've done is offer ridiculous incentives to family offices. Most of these guys get zero loan, you know, non-recourse loans at zero interest rates. I mean, it's crazy. But, but they want the family office because they think they can make extra fees out of a family office. So somewhere within this, the family office space, and it's usually one of the Swiss banks or somebody who's going to blow up somewhere on the back of this because that's usually what happens. So I want to answer Dan's question. And Raul, I don't know if you have any thoughts on this. I think the answer to your question, Dan, is what effing moron would do this? Well, if you saw that it worked in GameStop, you would then say, you know what? I can do this in other stocks as well. And I'm not convinced that this guy wasn't the mastermind behind that. But the, here's the thing with GameStop. I don't think there were any pros still buying the stock at 200, 300, 400, okay? Like they had their trade. Once they know that the short squeeze was on, they weren't buying it the whole way up. So my point is, is that in the Viacom in particular, this stock in two months went from 40 to 100. The company announces a $2.5 billion share sale, right. right? When the stock's in the 90s, it trades in the 80s. And for him to have a margin call right after that, you would assume that he had been buying the stock from 70 plus. Is that fair to say? And he may have been. And I want to get Raul on this. He may have been. But if you think about GameStop, I mean, you could have made the same argument $200 earlier. But guy, we were talking on this podcast in late January that they had their trade. But the idea of it going from 400 to 800 to 1600 was never going to happen. It's never happened. You know, Raul, you could probably tell us you might have been involved in the in the Volkswagen uh, short squeeze, you know, back 10, 12 years ago, that sort of thing. I mean, gravity matters in markets. It, it does, ultimately. Yeah, I would agree with that. I think what derailed the story this time was the fact that Viacom had the presence of mind to actually do a second. They said, holy shit, look at this. Let's do something. Stock closed at 91. They priced it at 85. And then you saw where it subsequently went. They derailed the trade. But maybe I'm wrong. Who, who actually knows? But Roel, my question to you is this. You know, I said on the show the other night, I've written about this. The only difference between a rogue trader and a partner is the P&L. In other words, if you make money, you're a genius. If you lose money, you're rogue. I mean, the fact that people say they had no idea what was going on is complete horseshit. Is that accurate or am I missing something here? No, of course it's horseshit. Everybody knows. I mean, everybody knows because somebody's printing the tickets and somebody's going around the office celebrating and somebody's getting a pat on the back. Everybody knows. You know, it's not like long-term capital. We didn't all know that we had a monster customer. And then we kind of figured out that he might blow up the world. But that was too late because he then blew up the world. Of course they know. So there's no surprise. They just got all caught with their pants down because they hadn't got enough margin. Why? Because he's a family office. And we all want family offices in our books because those guys are really juicy for us because we can charge higher margin. Well, guess what? You can charge higher margin until they blow up and then you didn't have enough margin. Simple as that. No one asks questions when stocks are going up, to Dan's point. You know, it's when stocks are going down that tide goes out and it's like, all right, who's left holding? When stocks are going up, everybody just piles on and buys because that's what stocks do. They go up. I think that's behavioral finance 101. But the long-term capital thing, and by the way, the rise and fall of long-term capital when genius failed is probably the best financial book ever written because you could apply that story to any bubble that goes on. But the best part, Raul, and you just kind of alluded to it, traders were doing their trades for free. They could long-term capital had convinced the brokers that it's an honor to see what we're doing. You're lucky to see what we're doing. And people, they were actually charging them the lowest commission. Is that right? Yeah. So we were charging probably, you know, these massive swaps. So we were doing like the HSBC, the Hong Kong shares versus the London shares, or the rule, the Dutch version of, of Royal Dutch Shell versus the London version. These arbitrages, I think we were charging on the, you know, the long short, the net was like. 35 basis points over LIBOR. I mean, there was nothing in it, but the trades were so big. As a salesman, I was printing huge numbers, but there was actually no margin in this bloody stuff at all. And when it blew up, we realized how bad it was. The other fun part of that equation, I then moved to Goldman from NatWest and LTCM blew up. And I unwound, I got called into a meeting in Trump Tower, in the, the Trump Hotel in New York. And there are all the partners of long-term capital and one of the Goldman partners, the head of equity derivative trading, he goes, Ralph, you're now going to have to unwind all of these trades. <laughs> and, and that was the day they were still in the news. It was like day two of the whole crisis. Called in. Everyone knew how the unwind was going to be take place. So I think it was Dave Modest from Goldman got placed into LTCM to unwind the books. And Dave Rogers, I think, as well. 
So, Raul, let's segue a little bit. I think the last time Guy and I were very fortunate to be in your presence, you used to, to pop on uh, Fast Money when you were in town. You were talking about big global macro themes. Our show generally tends to be a bit micro. So for us, it was always a real treat. Since you started Real Vision, and we're going to talk about Real Vision a little bit, your Twitter feed has been like a one-stop shop for the smartest stuff going on in finance, in my opinion. Okay, so big fan over here. I've followed your transition from what it seemed like, you know, you talking about these currency crosses, which was way, way above my pay grade and all that sort of stuff, to going heavy into crypto. It seems that you made the transition at the right time. It sounds like from what I've read and what I've heard you say, you were kind of a sleeper crypto guy in the in the early 2012, 13, 14 period. But you went in all in at one point. And so I think I've heard you say recently that you think that Bitcoin is the best macro trade you've ever seen in your lifetime. And I just want to make one comment and I want to hear why you think that. But to me, what's really interesting, even with Bitcoin around 59,000, just a few percent from its all-time highs here as we speak, it seems like there are two buckets of people who are all in on the crypto. It's either really successful men who've tunned it in either finance or tech or something like that who have plenty to lose or those on the other side of the spectrum that we've talked about a little bit in the in the lead up of this conversation who have actually nothing to lose but they actually don't see a whole heck of a lot of financial options for them and then there's this whole group of people in the middle people like maybe Danny and Guy and myself you know what I mean who are still kind of figuring out and we'll probably get to it eventually so why is this the macro trade of a lifetime and why should people like us really pay attention and get involved right now? So there's a number of different levels. I'm going to try and make it simple and quick as possible. Firstly, we all understand the monetary economic mess we're in. We know the only outcome, we've talked about it here, the only outcome is going to be more printing. We've talked about the fact that it's devaluing the currency overall and that the ECB are doing it, the BOJ are doing it, the PBOC have done it, the Bank of England done it, they're all doing it, right? So what we've talked about is that fixed assets tend to hold their value, i.e. there's there's a limited supply. So Bitcoin is a limited supply asset. Fine. So it goes up. Should go up like gold. It doesn't. It goes up a lot more. Why? This is the bit. Because it also offers solutions to all the other problems you and I have just been talking about. When long-term capital blew up, who owns what? Why didn't we know all the positions? All these questions we're asking. Blockchain solves all of this. Custody. So what happened in 2012 when the European banking system almost went under was the fact that Euroclear almost went bust as well, which had been the end of the world because of custody. Blockchain solves all of this. Bitcoin has a lot of this. It has a lot of the future technology of the financial system that solves many of the problems that we all grew up with and we all know is there. So what is that call option worth? Well, if I look at it, it also is trading like a reserve asset. So like a bond, but volatile because it's got this call option aspect. It's certainly a store of value like gold. So it trades like that, it's collateral for the system because you can't create more of it. So that's very attractive. So if I say, hey, listen, Dan, I want to borrow some money and I'm going to pledge Bitcoin, you're going to say, okay, fine. It's probably pretty valuable. And you'll decide how you'll haircut me because of the volatility, but that's okay. But it's pretty valuable as an asset because you can't devalue. I can't devalue it on you in, in certain ways. So we've got all of this element, but the element of the adoption effect of the people is what's really driving this. And again, we talked about this earlier. We're talking about the little guy who started this first, and the Silicon Valley billionaires. The Silicon Valley billionaires were thinking about their own money and the technology, and maybe this is a solution. The little guy thought, you know what? Maybe this can save my skin. Maybe here's the opportunity that I've got, that I can have some control over my ability to generate wealth through investments. Because we talked about it before, they can't own real estate. They can't own much other stuff. And those guys, because it's a network, the more you tell people, the more it goes up. So if I get you across the line and you buy it, incrementally, you're going to make the price go up. And then you're going to tell 10 other people. That's what network effects are. That's what Metcalfe's law is all about. And it trades exactly like that. It's a logarithmic asset. And we talked about that with Facebook. We talked about it with Amazon. It's the same. But because this is the network effect of money, Facebook had the network effect of we can find our family friends or your mate you went to school with haven't seen or an ex-girlfriend that you want to stalk. You can use Facebook for that. 
the shareholders got the money from the from the network effect, but in Bitcoin, the shareholders and the users are the same people. So you get paid when it goes up in value. So the more you drive the network, the better it is, which is why it's so crazy. That's a great description. You know, you just mentioned Facebook and Facebook is a company that has a market capitalization less than that of Bitcoin. And it has nearly, I don't know, more than three billion people, a third of the planet on their very centralized network. They are about to unleash a digital currency on that network. So my question to you as it relates to Bitcoin, why can't there be competition? If you're talking about network effects, I mean, why couldn't a company like Facebook with a division run by uh, David Marcus, who used to run PayPal, why couldn't they create a competition that could make Bitcoin go to zero ultimately? Because of network effects. It is almost impossible to do so when you've got a $1 trillion asset that's basically doubling every two months. It is almost impossible to create any competition. Bitcoin, I keep talking about this, Bitcoin is eating the world. What it means is there is almost no point investing in anything else. Well, in fact, there is no point. It has outperformed every other asset on earth in its existence. It's gone up 99 million percent now. That's crazy. But since about March last year, it has destroyed everything. It's up six, seven hundred percent. There's nothing else that looks like it because of this, all of the attributes that it has. So it's very difficult to set up any competition to Bitcoin. Now, so what Facebook do is something very different. It's a stable coin, which is pegged to the dollar. So what they want to do is have digital transactions and commerce happening over the Facebook platform seamlessly. Whole different world. That plugs in really nicely with Bitcoin, because then you can have your Facebook wallet, and you can own your Facebook stuff, and you can own your Bitcoin. It all integrates into that world. The whole world is moving digital. You and I now, in the olden days, we would have to meet in a studio, right? And now we don't do that any longer. It's a waste of time, everybody's time, because we're so used to operating digitally that I don't think of it like I'm not in the same room as you. I just think of it that I am. And so the digital world is, is the real world for us now. And digital money is it. And Bitcoin is the network of money. So what is that worth? Is that a $1 trillion thing? No chance. The size of the global equity market is $350 trillion. The size of the global bond market is about $100 trillion. The size of the global effect, you know, these things are hundreds of trillions. So what is the network of money worth? Well, my guess is if it's $1 trillion now, there's probably 100x upside potentially. So give me 100 for one risk reward. Let's say Rouse a total idiot goes to zero. I'll take that bet all day, every day. Here's where I do my PSA, the public service announcement for you folks playing the home game. So Nick Gilder, who I know Raul knows, did great song, Hot Child in the City. It was George Gilder that I think in 1993 came up with this network effect, talking about the Metcalf, the, right? All these things, number one. But if you really want to boil it down, when I was a kid, there was a Clairol Herbal Essence commercial they told a friend, they tell it, and so on and so on. That's the network effect, folks. So just to sort of drill it down so it, I can understand it, that's that. In terms of crypto and Bitcoin, what you just spoke about is a conversation I had with Michael Saylor a few weeks ago, talking about exactly that. What is this worth? And you know, I think he's of the view that Bitcoin or the entire cryptocurrency world, it's not just $10 trillion, which is the market cap of gold. It's probably north of $100 trillion. So he's in your camp. He also said, and I'm interested in what you think about this, because it got me thinking, most balance sheets of corporations are liabilities. He turned his liability into an asset when he now owns 60,000 Bitcoin. And he's convinced, and correctly, that other people are going to adapt this. Who is the game breaker, the game changer? Because I mentioned Apple they're $250 billion sitting around doing nothing. If Apple would come in and say, we're going to put, invest, whatever number, it doesn't even matter, quite frankly. Is that the next leg higher in this entire story? Yeah. So let's go back a little bit. Is Michael Saylor's view, and I think Michael's not explained it very clearly because he thinks so fast. But what he's saying is that by the central bank printing of money, Money is being devalued about 15% a year. Mm -hmm. That's exactly, so exactly right. I'm talking about the denominator keeps going down, right? So let's say you're Apple. You've got 200 billion. What do you buy with that 250 billion? Well, in your treasury, you buy credit, you buy some bonds, 
you might farm it out some equity managers, you might have some hedge fund exposure, whatever it is, right? Random stuff. Mostly that kind of stuff will generate 4%, but the central bank balance sheet is falling 15%. But you say, well, I don't care because wages aren't going up 4%. So, you know, it's okay. But what else do corporations buy? Other corporations. Well, all of those are going up because of the Fed balance sheet. The other thing they buy is real estate. As they grow, they buy new real estate. Those two things are going up. So if they want to buy any fixed assets or another corporation, they won't be able to afford to because the price of the corporations are going up faster than they can earn in their treasury operations. And this is where Michael Saylor is right. They need to own some of this. I think Apple is the game changer. I don't see why Google wouldn't either. Uh, and Microsoft, you know, those big cash generating tech names. I think that makes sense. It also makes sense for these kind of huge old crappy dinosaurs that need to reinvent themselves like General Electric. If they really want to move into a different world, this is the way they need to go. I mean, let's face it. I mean, Michael's business was fine, but it wasn't growing. It's just generating cash, not going anywhere. And he's like, well, what do I do? I, you know, I've got a great business. It keeps throwing off money, but the stock market doesn't care because unless you're growing a dead. So he said, well, just buy Bitcoin. And he kind of got it right, right? I got three different questions for you, Ralph. So is gold dead, which, you know, because of this, I'm curious where you think gold would be if Bitcoin didn't exist, because in this type of environment, gold should have been a rocket ship. That's one. Two, governments are freaking out, I'm sure. And the U.S. government probably was hoping for years that this thing would just blow up and go away. Right. And it hasn't. So now they're going to have to deal with it in some different capacity. And my last thing is, philosophically speaking, Satoshi or whatever his real name is, comes up with 21 million. And this is what it's going to be. The foundation of how Bitcoin began is where I think I and some other people just have a not a trust problem, but just an acceptance problem of why can't there be something else that gets created? Why is it this? And to your point, it's too big to fail at this point because it's embedded. I'd just love to get your thoughts on those three things. Yeah, on the latter point is the Lindy effect. The Lindy effect is basically anything that doesn't die lasts longer. And we see that in biology. We see it in everything around us, in physics and in corporations and in everything. So if you test something numerous times, it doesn't die, it becomes stronger. We see it with viruses, very common in viruses, for example. So they mutate and, and live longer. So that's what's happening with Bitcoin. It had numerous moments, S-curve moments, where it could have died and it didn't. So it makes it more robust as a system because people have more faith in it. So I don't think they can kill it. The regulators, the reason we've got central bank digital currencies coming is not because they're trying to create a competitor to Bitcoin, because these are wildly different beasts. They're just different. It's just digital money. The reason is because Bitcoin existed, because they saw that the future is digital. And we've had gold in our system for 8,000 years, and it's worked as a non-governmental source of savings. No problem. I don't see why they would have a problem with Bitcoin. They have no problem with real estate, which is bigger than the gold market. It's about 15 trillion or so. There's no, there's no real reason unless it becomes money itself. And the only reason it will become money itself is because the central banks adopt it. And that may happen in the future. Who knows, right? That's the Bitcoin maximalist view is it just becomes everything. And it could well do. I don't think it will. I think governments themselves, all they want to own is their on-ramps and off-ramps. They want to get paid for their taxation. They want to make sure that they get their fair share. And then you can basically do what you want. When it comes to the gold question, yeah, it should have been a lot higher. And gold seems to be following nominal bond yields right now, randomly. So it's a portfolio diversifier only right now. So if the stock market goes down, gold kind of goes up a bit. It's kind of weird. I think gold plays catch up. But I think a lot of people, the traditional gold investors, the family offices, stuff like that, because the pensions don't really own gold. The family offices endowments, I think they've gone for Bitcoin, as you say. I mean, it's just a superior asset because it doesn't cost you anything to store. It's instantaneous to transfer. It's just much easier. And it's got this upside skew that gold doesn't have in the same way. Well, we know one family office that should have bought Bitcoin instead of Viacom. But you know, with that, I'll turn it, I'll turn it over to Dan. We really appreciate your time here, Raul. So let's finish up with this with Real Vision. Obviously, Danny's been on it. I've been a subscriber for years. I think it's a, a truly great product. What did you see when you started this in 2014? Obviously, this product was built for this pandemic age, and you're seeing a lot of business models like yours and Real Vision have done very well in this environment, and you've accelerated certain behavior that is just going to stick from here on out. W what did you see back then, and how has your vision for Real Vision changed in the last year? What we saw back then was, you know, having just lived through the European crisis and lived through the 
2008 crisis. I knew that I was at the centre of the financial system and knew what was going on, and other people didn't. And they came to me and said, why didn't we know? And, you know, I didn't have a public persona or something. It was those friends in my town. Why, why, why did you know and we didn't? And I was living in Spain, and I thought, you know, I should do something about this. It took me a while to figure out what to do about it. But I realised that the future was going to be democratisation of, of information. Yeah, Occupy Wall Street had started. It made it clear that people were pissed. And they were pissed because nobody told them the truth. And the media had been too short form in its content that they weren't giving the people the kind of information they needed. So it was fine for news, but there was not enough analysis just because of the advertising business model made it very difficult to do. So we thought about that. We saw what video was doing and thought you could either do this via newsletter, but that's not going to work. The video is probably going to be the answer. And then we saw podcasts like Tim Ferriss coming and long-form content. And we thought that's, that's the answer, video long-form content uh, and subscription-based as opposed to advertising-based. That was the bet and, and that paid off. And now it's becoming apparent to me that as Real Vision's grown, we've got a bunch of other parts of Real Vision now, that this whole movement of the people versus the elite is ongoing. And what we find now is, I know for a fact that Stan Druckenmiller will watch Real Vision, as will a student, as will a dentist in Ohio, as will a taxi driver trying to figure out crypto. Okay, that's a whole interesting world. And they're all talking to each other in the comments section and on the exchange of building a community and exchanging views and ideas and asking each other questions. You know, I think the whole of the financial media construct is up for grabs because of how it's changed, because everybody has a say now and people aren't set up for it. Even Netflix, right? Netflix has no two-way audience. They just broadcast still, really, but just on demand. But we all know now is that unless you're talking actively to your customers and your customers are able to speak to each other, generate their own content, that's a really robust future. That's what people want. So that's where we've got a whole bunch of stuff. We're embedding education within as well because we think that's important. So we've just bought um, an old friend of mine from Goldman's trading education business. So we're layering that in. We're also layering in other research businesses and other communities. So we're, you know, we're actually acquiring stuff, all sorts of stuff. Really exciting time for real vision. So there's been a lot of Here's where I break your balls, okay, just as an FYI. So I used to go and I used to work for a living. I used to go to London and I used to stay at the Savoy, which is a fantastic place, by the way, in the day. Go to Babendum, the whole rig, right? And I was always fascinated that all you British guys put an S at all the end of this shit. Goldman's, Morgan's. But Barclays, it was Barclay. What's the deal with the S? Help me understand this, please. I have a problem with the fact that you put an S at the end of maths. I mean, you, we put an S. Of, we put an S in maths. It's mathematics, <laughs> and you're, you're you're dropping it. It's just lazy. You know, we get we give you the gift of our beautiful language, and you ruin it. No, we completely. I butcher it on a daily basis for the last fifteen years. And this, before we get out of here, and this has been wonderful. You've been so generous with your time. You're in the Cayman Islands. I mean, you've got a lot of stuff going on, but you're a young man. What are you doing for enjoyment then? It's a beautiful place to be. Do you fish? You said you're a shitty fisher. Do you sail? I mean, what's going on down there in the Cayman Islands? Diving. We've got the best reefs in the Caribbean. So I've just been for a week on the liveaboard dive boat because there's no tourists. So they were, they were basically charging nothing and you get all your food and drink. You go around the island and I live between the two islands. I mean, my house in Grand Cayman now. I also live on Little Cayman. Little Cayman, the reef goes from 20 feet to 6,000 feet vertically and it's gorgeous. You are a badass. You're a renaissance man. This has been a joy for me. I know for Danny and Dan as well. Raul Paul, thank you so much for joining us on the tape. We appreciate it. I loved it, guys. It was good to see you all and catch up again. Thanks once again to Raul Paul. If you're listening to this in a podcast store, be sure to hit subscribe so you never miss an episode. Follow us on Twitter at OnTheTapePod, and we'll see you next week. Mm-hmm.